Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who has done it all in the world of broadcasting. He truly is a man for all seasons. He hosted a talk show for 14 years in Houston, called games for the Major League Baseball's Houston Astros, the Montreal Expos, World Hockey Association's Houston Arrows, the National Basketball Association's Houston Rockets, the National Football League's Houston Oilers, and then joining Joe Castiglione in the Red Sox radio booth in 1993. It is a pleasure to welcome one of the great play-by-play voices of our generation, the great Jerry Truppiano to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Jerry. Thank you. Sounds like I couldn't hold the job. <laughs> <laughs> well, we didn't want to say that, but... Uh, you know, so you grew up in St. Louis at a time yeah. that they quite possibly had the greatest broadcast crew ever put together. All three are actually in the broadcast wing of the Hall of Fame, and that's Harry Carey, Jack Buck, and Joe Garagiola. What influence did those three legends have on you at an early age? Without a doubt, that's that's where the bug hit me when uh, uh, we were playing wiffle ball in the backyard, and after listening to uh, those guys on the radio, I, I hit a tremendous home run into my neighbor's yard. Must have gone all of sixteen feet, and as as the ball was uh, going out of my yard, I called it like Harry Carey, and the guys, uh, my buddies, kind of liked that, and. Uh, that kind of gave me the bug, and that's that's where it all started. I uh, I uh, got the bug listening to to those great guys, and at least two of them I, I've met Joe Gargiola, the late Joe Gargiola, but uh, Jack was my mentor and got to be good friends with Harry as well. So those those guys were uh, big uh, big influences on me. It's amazing to think that those three voices were, were at one time in the same area. You go from St. Louis University, where you began your broadcasting career as a disc jockey on the college radio station, to being a producer at KMOX Radio. And before there was XM Sirius Radio, KMOX was similar to Sirius Radio because you could get that in 44 of the 50 states. And I don't think people of a certain generation understand. I, I'm 59, and I remember clearly... You know, taking a transistor radio in your bed at night and, and fiddling around and getting <laughs> like these stations from it seemed like right. from the other part of the world. What was it like working at that station? What can you tell you know our, our listeners and viewers that don't know what KMOX meant at that time? Well, they they had as you mentioned the the three great broadcasters, but then add to that probably the greatest hockey announcer who's who's been around, Dan Kelly who uh, helped me get started in hockey, was another mentor of mine. They had, uh, at one point, Skip Carey uh, doing the Hawks when the Hawks were there. Bob Starr, who was one of the best football broadcasters you could ever hear. And I've always said that spending four years at KMOX as a producer, to me, was the equivalency of getting a master's degree from Harvard. <laughs> uh, because you, you, you learned from all those guys were Hall of Famers, and all those guys were very good to me. And uh, just just being around there and, and learning from Bob Hyland, who was the general manager, who three times turned down the presidency of CBS Radio to stay there at, at KMOX. He started talk radio. He started uh, that, that format. Uh, to learn from those people, I was very, very fortunate. And you, and you mentioned my campus radio station at St. Louis University at that time. It was KBIL. 
their their uh, mascot at St. Louis University is is a billiken called the billiken. And it was KBIL. And we were on the third floor of a condemned building. That's, that's where I first, first was able to break on the air as a disc jockey from 12 to 1. And uh, you, you, you always kind of sweated uh, your, your shift when you were at that radio station because if, if anything went wrong, you uh, you yeah. could drop in a hurry, and there were no elevators in that, <laughs> in that, in that building. Uh, at age 26, you become the play-by-play voice of the Houston Arrows of the WHA, who at the time... 24. 24. At 24 oh, at 24. Wow. Okay. So you become the play-by-play voice of the Houston Arrows of the WHA, who at the time had one of the greatest players ever to have played the game, and Gordy Howe, mm-hmm. who played with his sons Mark and Marty. What do you remember most about covering Gordy Howe during the years that, you know, mind you, he was 46, 47, 48, mm-hmm. and 49, yet he still, mm-hmm. still scored 121 goals over those four seasons, including his 800th career goal, which you got to call? The most humble superstar I've ever been around. And I got to be very close with, with the Howe family. As a matter of fact, after their first year in Houston, uh, at the breakup party uh, at the end of the season, Colleen, his, his wife, had asked if anybody was, was staying in Houston. And most, you know, most of the guys were Canadians, and they were going back to Canada for the summer. And my wife Donna and I were, were staying uh, in Houston. We had moved there permanently. Well, we said, uh, well, we're staying. She says, how would you like to live rent-free in our house, which had a swimming pool and a putting green? And she says, just watch our house. Well, we did that, and we saved so much money that summer. We were able to buy our first house in Houston. We had been living in an apartment. I got to be very, very close with, with Gordy and the boys. Uh, Gordy was on the road, always tried to uh, work on uh, crossword puzzles. And he liked to have me sit around with him because, uh, you know, we'd, we'd commiserate and I'd if he ever got stuck on a word, that I was lucky a few times to get him uh, in the right direction. But uh, what a great guy. Of course, I didn't have to play against him. I never got the <laughs> elbows. Uh, but uh, he, 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 was, he was tremendous. He absolutely was. And for me, I mean, people know we did a special tribute to him because uh, when I moved from uh, – I lived on Long Island, but then when I got married, I lived in Queens, moved back out to Long Island. And when I had stopped playing competitive baseball, I shifted over to what Gordie Howe had started. It was called the National Novice Hockey Association. And basically, yeah. it was eight weeks of training. And the ninth week, Gordie Howe came down and played with you. So here I am playing on a line with, Mark, uh, with Gordie and Marty Howe. And wow. fast forward years later, and I have a, an autographed glove of the two of them. <laughs> fast forward up in the press box at Madison Square Garden. Mark Howe was there scouting, and you know we had dinner in the, the media lounge, and I, I walk over to Mark, and I said, Mark, believe it or not, you're the only Howe I've never played on a line with. And I explained <laughs> to him, he started cracking up, but, but you're right, Gordy Howe was just an absolute well, legend, and, and what a great guy, and, and such a great yeah. ambassador for the game. So well, after- you, if, you, if, you, if you lived on Long, Long Island, you must have known uh, one of my other good buddies, John Tonelli, who won four Stanley Cups Absolutely. with the Islanders. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm as Mark, Mark, a Mark, Mark is not that, an island. That, Mark is a ranger. That hurt. Yeah, Islanders. That's, that cut short the interview pretty quickly. All right. Nice <laughs> speaking to you, Jerry. Goodbye. <laughs> uh, no, but, but you know what? I will say this. And we've had Nystrom on, Bob Nystrom, yeah. and, and John Tonelli were the two guys that I said would fit as rangers. I love Tonelli's style. The guy went into the corner, always came out with it, but also a WHA guy as well. Um, so after the arrows fold, you move on to the Rockets. What's that yeah. transition like, moving from the hockey, you know, calling hockey into basketball? And, and what type of adjustment and work did that take? Well, uh, we, uh, 
we, we did a simulcast in hockey, which we basically did a radio broadcast, and it was simulcast on TV. When we joined the Rockets, we did their television. So you did you did uh, less talking because the pictures obviously told the story. But uh, they, they auditioned me. They, they uh, came to me after the arrows folded and uh, said, would you like to audition for the Rockets TV play-by-play job? And I had that basketball before. So they put me in a studio at, at, uh, at KDNL TV in, in, uh, in Houston. I think that was what the uh, call letters, Channel 39. So they, they played the tape of a, of a Rockets game. I did two minutes and they hired me. And it was, it was, it was interesting because uh, being, being in hockey, those guys were, were great at pulling uh, practical jokes. They almost had me in trouble. They almost had me fired. From the Rockets, because I decided to play a practical joke when the Rockets were playing the Nuggets in Denver. And Daryl Garrison, the uh, late great official from the NBA, uh, he calls a, a foul on Calvin Murphy, so we're going into a TV timeout. And Garrison comes over to our TV position, and he's got his back to me, and he's bouncing the ball, and he says, What the replay show when I call? I said, Daryl, great call. You got it. You got it right. So out of the TV timeout, coming out of the huddle, Calvin Murphy comes by our TV position and said, what what the replay show on that uh, that foul call? I said he, he missed the call. You didn't you didn't follow that guy. He went <laughs> running out after Garrison. Unfortunately, Rudy Tomjanovich grabbed him and kept him from getting getting a technical and getting kicked out of the. I never pulled that again. And Calvin Murphy is now Houston Rockets announcer. That's pretty yeah. funny. Yep. So, right. so my right. question, uh, hi Jerry, this is Ryan Sherman. My question is actually a perfect follow up. I want to get into the specifics of it. Is the difference between if you've ever listened to a radio hockey broadcast, basketball or baseball, there's a different cadence to all of them. And so how do you prepare for that and really like get into the flow of it, of the the to the point, to the thing, to the that, to the this, and to the you know two two you know on the outside corner. Yeah. You know how do you do that? Here's the way I explain it. And right now, I'm about to go in either my third or fourth year. I teach a sports broadcasting course at the University of Houston online. I still live in Massachusetts, but I teach online. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me, I'm a little bit of a cold. Uh, I teach an online class. And in hockey, basketball, and football, those games are all controlled by a clock. And you find a rhythm based on the style of play, and you kind of combine that with how you know how the clock is running. In baseball, you could have a guy like Chris Sale pitching, uh, and he's working rapidly, or you could have a guy out there that's taking forever. Or Masahiro Tanaka. Masahiro Tanaka. Yeah, and you could have them both in the same game. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yes. to me, baseball baseball is the hardest game to broadcast because of the lack of a pace. And I think it lends itself perfectly for storytelling. Mm-hmm. For uh, uh, today, Joe Buck to me is is one of the best because Joe lets the game breathe. If you listen uh, to a Fox or watch a Fox broadcast and, and you compare it to some of the other broadcasts that are on and and compare it during the postseason, there, there seems to be guys that are are a rush just to keep talking and talking and talking. Joe to me does a tremendous job of letting the game breathe. And baseball to me. You know, we cram six and a half minutes of action into a four-hour game. Yeah. Uh, you, to me, it's it's the last area of complete, off the top of your head, creativity, because you're not controlled by a clock. 
you're, you're not controlled really by a format other than one to get the commercials in and what have you. So, so it's all up to you as as the broadcaster to be able to hold that audience. And you know, I hear guys today talking about exit velocity for a basic to left field. You know, okay, I'm old school. You know, <laughs> uh, I, I've been around a few years. That, that to me is not entertaining. Now, when I did the World Baseball Classic two years ago, GM Carlos Stanton hit a home run at San Diego for Team USA. That was the quickest ball I can recall of getting out uh, of the ballpark. And we had a third member of the broadcast crew who was in charge of uh, talking about things about, you know, uh, exit velocity or whatever. To me, that, okay, that's a good note there. But if you're going to hammer me with statistics that mean really nothing, like the exit velocity of a base hit to left field, that to me is not entertaining. Uh, you know, anybody can read the media guide and fill it up with notes and what have you. Have you? But but to talk about to think strategy of the game. That's one thing Buck really told me or taught me to think along with the game. It's not it's not second guessing. But I was able, and I don't mean this in a braggadocious way, but but I was able because you get used to manager styles and player styles, you know, to predict a hit and run uh, or things like that. Is this guy going to steal there? So you, you you get into sync with the game, and to me that is. That is more entertaining than saying, well, you know, here's uh, Joe Smith. He was born in uh, Keokuk, Iowa. This is his third year with such and such a team. And sure, you do a little bit of that. But to me, the game is the story and, and, and talk the game. And, and, you know, the strategy of the game is the, the battle between pitcher and catcher. You know, if you have a sinker ball pitcher and, and a low ball hitter, or how, how a guy holds the bat will tell you if he's a high ball hitter or a low ball hitter. You spend a lot of time with scouts, and you learn a lot of baseball from scouts, and, and you do a lot of listening around the batting cage, and you do a lot of listening sitting around with scouts, and, and, and that comes into the, the verbal painting, if you will, of the broadcast itself. You know, now that you brought up baseball, Jerry, this is A.J. Carter. When you start talking about Excuse what me. you remember, and, and people start asking you a lot about the Red Sox and, and winning the pennant, let's go back to 1986. You were broadcasting the Astros, and of course, those of us who yeah. are Mets fans remember Should have been in the World Series. Right. Pe- people talk about you know the Buckner game, whatever, but before that, and people who are true Mets fans remember that Houston Astros series. And it was yep. five games, and one game was one nothing, and two of them went into extra inning, including the fifth game went 16 innings. So when you say right. let let the game be the story, what are your memories going back of that entire series and how the tension built up game after game after game? And also, you know, let's let's paint a further picture. Yeah. That was the Mets returning to a place where a bunch of them had gotten arrested during the regular right. season right. as well. And, 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 of course, and, of, and of course, the the Astros had Mike Scott, Scott former Mets. Game right, right. So get ahead, Jeff. Yeah, I'm not going to accuse anybody of anything, but. but, but when you were with that team and you, you uh, came back from the road trip, if, if you needed some sandpaper, you better get to Home Depot right away. For <laughs> yeah. But you didn't hear that from me. Uh, to, to me, that I was going back and forth between uh, New York and Houston, uh, obviously with the team, but also I was, I was broadcasting for the Oilers at the time. So, so when the, the Saturday game that uh, Dykstra won with a, a home run, I, was I, I had I had come back to uh, I had come back to Houston and I took a cab from the airport uh, back back to my place in Houston and I, I was 
and have the guy turn the radio on and, and listen to his backstreet hit that one out. Game five to me was one of the greatest baseball games. Many say it was the greatest baseball game ever played. Because in that game, when, when, um, if, if, if memory serves, the Mets went ahead in the ninth, the Astros tied it. The, then in the, was it the 13th, 14th, one of those innings, the Mets, might have been the 14th inning, Mets went ahead, and Billy Hatcher, who was not a power hitter, hit a home run to tie it. And I had been in the Astrodome a thousand times, and I thought the Monday night game with Will Campbell scored four touchdowns against the Miami Dolphins was the loudest I've ever heard that place. But when when Hatcher hit that home run and extra innings to tie it, the game where the Astros would eventually lose, when Hatcher hit that home run, that was an occasion when you could feel sound, if that makes sense. Yeah. That, that crowd was, was so loud that they shook that building. And, of course, uh, the, the Mets went on and uh, oh, scored in the 16th. They scored three in the 16th, and yeah. the Astros came back two. with two. Yep. Two, and, 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 really and, and Kevin struck out. Jesse Orozco got him, uh, struck him out, and Jesse Orozco threw his ball, threw his glove up in the air. I'm not sure that glove ever came down <laughs> in the rafters of, of the Astros. But it, it was, that was uh, an exciting series. Disappointing. Uh, but uh, you know, many felt that the Red Sox should have been in that in that series in uh, in '86. But uh, well, oh, they were in the series yeah, in '86. Yeah. The, the Angels. Also, the Angels. They should have been there. If Mike Scott had gotten to pitch in Game Seven, chances are, you know, yeah, there's no Houston question. Felt that uh, they would have been there. I agree with that. Um, you know, so you know, you you did mention about the Oilers, and you know, the the fact is, you basically. You basically accomplished the grand slam of broadcasting. You do all four major sports. When you're with the Astros, you work with legendary announcer Milo Hamilton. With Montreal, you paired with another you know, legend in Dave Van Horn. How does being paired with true play-by-play guys differ from – and you mentioned it, and I, I have to take this moment. You, you mentioned how guys just talk to hear themselves talk, and I, I believe yeah. – that's what's now happening with ESPN. Uh, you know, A-Rod and... Um, Jessica Mendoza? Yeah, Mendoza. They talk over the game. They don't even broadcast the game. And is great. But, right, and Sturgeon, yeah, but that's play-by-play. Play. So now when you have two play-by-play guys, how do you develop that rhythm and know when, you know, to, to chime in? And is it easier when you guys are both play-by-play guys to understand the ebbs and flow of the game? I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you some inside things here. I don't think I've ever stated publicly before. And uh, let, let me know if I'm taking too much time. No, not at all. <laughs> um, my job at the Astros was the first in, in, in Major League Baseball. And Gene Elston, who's also in the broadcast wing of the Hall of Fame, and Milo Hamilton, who's also in the broadcast wing of the Hall of Fame, both were old school guys. Gene... Both did not want me there. Both, both, and Milo was was more overt about it. He, he would tell people, "Well, if you didn't spend eight years in the minor leagues, you shouldn't be in the major league booth." Uh, bottom line, Milo did not like me at all, and, and made life very difficult. I eventually worked and got Gene Elston's admiration, and we became very good friends. Uh, Milo resented me for being younger. And because I was doing play-by-play, he wanted to do all nine innings. Uh, working, Dave Van Horn is a good friend. 
working with, with Gene and, like I said, Milo, Gene was, was old school, and, and he felt that he should be the only one talking when he was doing play-by-play. So I, normally you would sit there and do color. You just sat there silently until you got your, your innings. Milo would want you to chip in from time to time, excuse me, but not too often. So you had to you had to learn that balance. With Dave Dave Van Horn in Montreal, it was it was easy because you know we, we would converse back and forth. And he was he was a delight to work with, and uh, you know he was he was used to having broadcast partners. He had uh, Jim Fanning for a year. He had Duke Snyder for several years. Uh, I think he might have also had Don Drysdale for a little, for a little while. Wow. And then I, I I came along, so it was it was easy making the transition with Dave, but. The, the, the Houston years were very uncomfortable uh, at the start until I won Gene over. Uh, working with, with Milo was, was very difficult, even, even to the point where guys would tell you stories like a terrific broadcaster, Lanny Pateri in Pittsburgh, who worked with, with Milo, uh, almost quit from working with him because he was so difficult with the young announcers. You see, I was used to a great guy like Jack Buck, who, who used to get me into uh, an empty broadcast booth in St. Louis to practice by play-by-play, and he would critique it, even to the point. How about, how about this? I don't know if I've ever told you guys this, guys this story before, but the 2004 World Series, the Red Sox are playing the Cardinals in St. Louis, and and in the postseason, when the broadcast setup goes like this, home TV goes to Fox. Visiting TV in those days in 2004 went to ESPN International. Now it goes to MLB Network. Home radio stays in your home booth. Visiting radio goes to ESPN Radio. And visiting radio goes to an auxiliary booth. So when we were at Fenway in 2004, at home, we'd stay in our own booth. When we went to St. Louis for games three and four in 2004, we went to an auxiliary booth for our broadcast. I broadcast the 2004 World Series from the booth I used to practice in as a kid. Wow. That had a chance to go full circle. That, that had to be a special, I mean, and to call wow. that World Series as well. Yeah. So let, let's go to 91. You join, you join Joe Castiglione and become one of the voices of the Red Sox. And mm-hmm. this is not a slight against the other markets that you worked in, but Boston is just different. So what right. did you notice about the Red Sox fan base as opposed to other places and other teams you have worked for? You didn't have to say there are plenty of good seats still available. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in the early days, they were drawing pretty good, but it seemed like you didn't have to do many ticket promos. It's funny that now that they're, what, 13 and a half behind the Yankees, they just put out a promo or something tonight, bring a date to Fenway night, that they're selling two tickets and a couple of hot dogs and a couple of soft drinks and, Something else that they're starting to, with the Patriots about to start up. And the Red Sox, in, uh, in a free fall, they're about to uh, put a push on to try to get some people back to the ballpark. Because, uh, uh, I guess they realize that this one has slipped away. But the, but the big thing was you didn't have to push tickets much. And, and, and it didn't, it's not an educational process. I, I think, I think what, what works, uh, at least I find it to work, if you're yourself, if, if you don't make it about you. If you make it about the game, if, if you're honest with the fans, uh, that they'll accept you. I, my, my first year, um, 
I was, uh, my, my family had moved to uh, Boston. They had sold a house in Texas at that point. Um, so I was, I was uh, on my own. So one night after uh, an afternoon game against the Texas Rangers, I had uh, gone to a local establishment uh, in, in downtown Boston. And, and uh, let me back up. The night before, the uh, Red Sox, the pitcher's staff, gave up uh, a tremendous home run to Jose Canseco. And we were trying to figure out if the ball had gone over the light tower in left. So from our angle, we couldn't tell. So we went over to the riders' booth, and uh, we were talking to, to several of the riders. Did, did it go over the light tower? Can you tell? As one writer started getting very scientific and talked about the theory of black, that you could not, you could not tell depth perception because of the black sky, and, and you couldn't tell whether or not it went over the uh, uh, light tower. So I came back to the booth, and I'm, I'm on the air, and we're talking, and I, I said, you know, uh, Joe had mentioned the theory of black, and I said, theory, theory, that ball was smoked. <laughs> so now it's the next day. That happened on a Friday night. It's, it's the next day, and I'm in this restaurant. And uh, back in those days, and uh, this is how old I am, they, uh, they had a smoking section. Well, I didn't smoke, but I, I, I was in the, the non-smoking section. And there, there was a bunch of people in the restaurant over in the smoking section, and there was another couple, a couple that came in to the non-smoking section. And I'm sitting there, and you can try to listen in on conversations, but you're the only people in this area. And this guy starts telling his wife or girlfriend, he says, yeah, the Red Sox have this new out here. And he's talking about, you know, about the theory of black. And he said, theory, shit, that ball was smoked. <laughs> and, 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 you know, kind of impressed you that the people were listening and picking up on that. So as I left, I, I told the waiter, I said, you know, pick up a drink from me or for those folks. I didn't introduce myself or anything. I said, you know, it's, it's such a, a way of life here that the, uh, the Red Sox are you know, just so much in the uh, fabric of this area of the country. Of course, the, the fabric's being torn a little bit now because the Patriots are about to start in the Red Sox. Speaking off the joint. You know, and to be part of that fabric, obviously, your home run call of Big Poppy in 2004 is, you know, something, obviously, to be part of something that hadn't been done in 86 years. It's included in the top 25 of uh, Major League Baseball Network's all-time calls out of the 50 all-time. So that's got to be a pretty cool uh, accolade. But in the open, we mentioned all the different teams you have worked for. And in closing, I'm wondering if they're, you know, the call comes from the Hall of Fame, and you they're going to put a plaque up for you. What's the hat you go in wearing? First of all, that's flattering, but the call will never come. One second, Jerry, we're losing a little bit. If you could just move the phone up a little bit, I think. Yeah, I said that's flattering, but I don't think that call will ever come. But if if I guess I guess the the Red Sox years, although it's hard to turn your back on. I wasn't on the air at Campbell but uh, Camel X was such a big influence on me. Uh, I, I was so lucky to uh, get that job as, as a producer there and learn from those guys. Uh, I will forever be grateful. My, my, one of my biggest disappointments in broadcasting, when, when I had gotten established in Houston and, and the Arrows had told that I'm doing the NBA and now I'm doing uh, football, Bob Hyland, the general manager at Campbell, I mentioned earlier, turned out a president of CBS Radio three 
times. He called and wanted me to fill in for Dan Kelly for 10 Blues games. Oh, wow. Well, my schedule was, was so full that I could only do two of the 10. And to turn down Mr. Highland, that was a, that was a big, big, big disappointment for me not to be able to, to be on the air at, at KMOX even for, you know, for, for 10 nights uh, was, was a disappointment. That would have been, that would have been terrific. And, and lastly, I, I have to get this in because AJ and I did a book about fathers and sons in baseball. May 16th, 2007, you joined a very elite club, the, the Carries, the Bucks, and the Brennemans, as you're joined by your son Brian to call a game between the Brockton Rocks and the Oil Cam Boyd's Traveling All-Stars. That game was broadcast on tape delay by two public access TV, cable TV stations. Where does that experience rank, uh, rank among the many other moments you've had in your amazing career? That was fun. Uh, that was something we looked forward to. But you know what happened? Two batters into the game. A hellacious storm came up, and they canceled the game. <laughs> but you did get to do a rain delay, you know, talk up a for, little bit for, before they canceled it, we, right? I think we were on the. I think we were on there for ten minutes. I, you know, because Brian had played for the Brock. Right. He played one year in the uh, in the Independent League, and uh, you know, just just to have done that game, that would have been that would have been terrific. That would have been a lot of fun, and uh, uh, but <laughs> I guess Mother Nature had other ideas. Another opportunity didn't come up. <laughs> No, no, that was it. I mean, uh, uh, Oil Cam Boyd's traveling all stars. I guess it was Delano DeShields also there, and uh, they they had moved on. They had they had other other commitments. Jerry, where can people catch up with you? Whether it be social media or just uh, websites, where can people catch up with what you're doing these days? Uh, Well, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook. Uh, uh, My highlights are on Vimeo. If you just put my name in, but. Always looking to get back. I've done some basketball for, for CBS Television, for, uh, for the CBS Sportsnet. I've done some of that and done some uh, college football for uh, Fox Sports 1. But uh, not, not anything lately, and we're always looking to do more. You know, try, if you're not 35 anymore, they don't always give you a, a, a chance. But we're, we're always looking. We always, you know, I try to get back into, into baseball, but uh, nothing worked out. So, you know, we just. We're teaching at the University of Houston. Maybe we'll add some more schools. I don't know. But, uh, always, always looking for opportunities. And it's, it's fun visiting and reminiscing with guys like yourselves. Our pleasure. You're welcome here anytime. We really appreciate you taking the time out and sharing some great stories with us tonight, Jerry. Anytime, guys. All the best. You got it, Jerry Trupiano, legendary broadcaster.